Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Lohogo, and Figile Lungwati. In our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. The UN appoints Antonio Guterres as the new Secretary General. And at least nine people were killed in South Sudan in renewed clashes. In economics news, lead investor in Uganda, Tanzania Pipeline may get up to 60% stake. And in sports news, South Africa to face Brazil in the BRICS Football Cup final. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. More than 50 people have been killed in fighting in three of South Sudan's volatile regions. The three regions, Eastern Equatoria, Western Equatoria and Central Equatoria, have seen some of the heaviest fighting. President Silvakir's government is blaming rebels loyal to former Vice President Rahik Machar. Machar, who fled the country in August, is currently undergoing medical treatment in South Africa. South Sudan's Information Minister Michael McQuee. We appeal to the region and to the international community to condemn these terrorist acts. These rebels who are causing all this in the eyes of the government are terrorists and should be declared terrorists. The power they want, if they are at all in search of power, the power is not in the hands of these innocent children and women. The power is not in the hands of these innocent civilians who are being killed on the road. If they don't respond, the government will act, and in case they are harmed, they should not complain, because they will be part and parcel of these terrorist groups. Anybody who harbors a criminal is a criminal. The United Nations Special Envoy to Burundi has been tasked by the Security Council to travel to the country and work on a consensus regarding the possible deployment of a UN police component. Jamal Ben-Omar presented a report to council members regarding the status of the implementation of the French-led resolution that authorized the force. More than 400 people have been killed and 240,000 citizens have fled to neighboring countries since a crisis broke out in April last year following a controversial electoral process. Benamar elaborates. As you are aware, the government of Burundi rejected key provisions of the resolution shortly after it was adopted. Council members have requested that I travel to Burundi in order to consult with the government, to hear their positions, their concerns, to share the views of the council, and to clarify our objectives. I will endeavor to consult constructively with the government in order to work towards a consensual way forward. 
South Africa's Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs Minister Des Van Royen has joined President Jacob Zuma in bringing a court application to try and halt the release of outgoing public protected to Lima Donsela's report on state capture. Madonsela sits to release several reports. Van Royen's application will be heard by the High Court in Pretoria later on Friday. Zuma's application will be heard on Tuesday. Meanwhile, South African opposition party, the EFF, says it will do everything in its power to ensure that the public protector's report on alleged state captures released. EFF Deputy President Floyd Shivambu. We have contacted the office of the public protector and were given an indication that there's not yet a final court order in terms of whether there is an interdict on the release of the preliminary report or not. So we will await further guidance from the PP's office in terms of whether the report will be released tomorrow or not because the Gupta family is running South Africa through a job zoom. We will do everything in our power as the EFF to make sure that the investigations are ultimately made public and job Zuma is exposed for who he is, a puppet of the Gupta family. And finally, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has denied Ethiopian accusations that his country was supporting the opposition after a wave of violent protests that left hundreds dead. Ethiopia accused elements in Eritrea, Egypt and also on Monday of being behind protests over land grabs and human rights that prompted the government to declare a state of emergency. Ethiopia said Egypt was a source of backing for armed groups, though that backing may not come from state actors. Al-Sisi denied those accusations. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and it's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Friday, October the 14th, the 288th day of 2016, with 78 days left in the year. United Nations Secretary-General-designate Antonio Guterres says he will make human dignity the core of his work at the helm of the organization. In his maiden address to the General Assembly after member states endorsed the Security Council recommendation to appoint him, the former Portuguese Prime Minister and High Commissioner for Refugees expressed his humility and gratitude for the confidence placed in him by all 193 member states of the organization. Show and Bryce Peace reports. I have the honor to announce that His Excellency Antonio Guterres has been appointed by acclamation Secretary-General of the United Nations for a term of office from 1st January 2017 to 31st December 2021. General Assembly President Peter Thompson confirming the consensus decision by Member States as Antonio Guterres is thrust into the spotlight in one of the toughest jobs in the world. I am fully aware of the challenges the UN faces and the limitations surrounding the Secretary-General. The dramatic problems of today's complex world can only inspire a humble approach, one in which the Secretary-General alone 
neither has all the answers, nor seeks to impose his views. One in which the Secretary-General makes his good offices available, working as a convener, a mediator, a bridge builder, and an honest broker to help find the solutions that benefit everyone involved. He spoke of his years in the field, most notably a decade as refugee chief in war zones and refugee camps, confronted by suffering in all the corners of the globe. One might legitimately ask what has happened to the dignity and worth of the human person, the dignity and worth of the human person referred in our charter. What has made us immune to the plight of those most socially and economically underprivileged? And all this makes me feel the acute responsibility to make human dignity the core of my work, and I trust the core of our common work. The outgoing UN boss Ban Ki-moon praised the Assembly's choice. I have long valued his advice and long admired his spirit of service. He is a wonderful choice to steer this organization as we build on the progress of the past decade while addressing the insecurity and uncertainties of today's world. Guterres, who officially assumes the reins on January 1st, received the full backing of the Africa Group through Niger's ambassador Abdallah Wafi. The African Group extends heartfelt congratulations to Mr. Antonio Guterres for his designation to accede to the helm of the United Nations, bringing on board a wealth of experience in global affairs and further assures him of the African group's full support and commitment in the, in the discharge of mandates. For the host country, United States Ambassador Samantha Power said they'd selected a candidate who can best overcome the bureaucracy that comes with the job. We have selected a candidate who is prepared to cut past the jargon and the acronyms and the sterile briefings and get real. He knows the only measure of our work here is whether we are or are not helping and supporting real people. And so the baton will slowly pass from the 8th Secretary General to the 9th, including words of wisdom for a job that confronts not only issues of development and human rights, but ending conflicts, some decades long, responding to natural disasters and forging unity in an organization as diverse as anything on this planet. And with progress in ending conflicts like Syria and South Sudan stagnating in the absence of political will, the gratitude and humility expressed for his appointment here might quickly be reassessed by the rigors of the job. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Fierce fighting has resulted in the death of more than 50 people in South Sudan's volatile regions, eastern and western Equatoria, as well as central Equatoria region, where the capital, Juba, is located. The fighting involves fighters loyal to rebel leader Riek Macha and troops supporting President Salva Kiir. To make matters worse, heavily armed marauding village gangsters have taken advantage of lapse in security to carry out village and road attacks. James Mangula has more. The United Nations mission in South Sudan has expressed grave concern over fresh rounds of fighting in various parts in the country over the past few weeks. According to Unimis spokesperson in Juba Yasmina Bouziane, 
The security situation has deteriorated to the extent that it requires quick intervention by more than 4,000 troops that were approved by the United Nations Security Council to go to the troubled country to protect the civilians. These are major concerns to us. We have also, as the mission received, continued reports of clashes in the Equatoria, and we are trying to verify accounts of attacks by unidentified armed men on civilian convoys traveling from Ye to Juba. The mission is quite concerned. Access on the ground has become challenging. Unless condemned in its strongest possible terms, any return to violence, we urge all to work to help the people of South Sudan. The three regions, Eastern Equatoria, Western Equatoria, and Central Equatoria, where Juba is located, have seen some of the heaviest fighting. The government of President Salva Kiir is blaming rebels, loyal to former Vice President Riek Machar, of unleashing terror throughout the country. Machar, who fled the country in August, is currently undergoing medical treatment in South Africa. Information Minister Michael McQuay has branded Machar's fighters as terrorists and wants the international community to swing into action to stop the ongoing carnage. We appeal to the region and to the international community to condemn these terrorist acts. These rebels who are causing all this in the eyes of the government are terrorists and should be declared terrorists. The power they want, if they are at all in search of power, the power is not in the hands of these innocent children and women. The power is not in the hands of these innocent civilians who are being killed on the road. If they don't respond, the government will act. And in case they are harmed, they should not complain. Because they will be part and parcel of these terrorist groups. Anybody who harbors a criminal is a criminal. So if you don't want to harbor a criminal, send him away from your area so that you are free. Otherwise, you will be treated the same way. The description of Machar fighters as terrorists has riled one of his spokesmen, Mabiore Garang, son of the founder of the South Sudanese nation, the late John Garang. Speaking via phone, this is what Garang said. The government is trying to do this in order to portray the SDLM in opposition as a negative force. But uh, this is just politicization and it's very unfortunate that instead of conducting an investigation into what has happened so that we can solve it, they are throwing around accusations. So we are going to conduct our own internal investigation and if we do find that there are SDLMIO commanders who are doing this, then they will be brought to justice because it's a criminal issue and it should not be politicized. South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay is calling you terrorists. This is his opinion. We cannot say that we are terrorists. The government is the one which is a terrorist government. Over 300 people have died and 200,000 displaced since renewed fighting broke out in July this year. Juba's failed unity government has faced major political challenges. Earlier this week, a top general, Bapin Monitwil, fled the country. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Meanwhile, the African Union is standing with the women of South Sudan in a campaign that is set to project the need to defend their dignity. AU Chair Dr. Nkosazana Lamini Zuma is supporting the campaign that will run until December to highlight the rights of a South Sudan woman. Kaleta Wanjohi reports. 
For over two years now, the world's youngest nation has been engulfed in internal conflict as the government of President Salva Kiir still faces opposition from supporters of the former vice president of the country and rebel leader Riek Machar. The chairperson of the African Union Commission, Dr. Nkosa Zanadlamini Zuma, says all this time as the power struggle has continued, especially women and children of South Sudan have been victims. Today it is heartbreaking to note that over 50,000 South Sudanese have lost their lives in this conflict since 2013. Millions more have lost their dignity and security, especially women and girls, having to flee their homes to difficult spaces, being abused and their bodies used as a weapon of war. Dr. Dlamini Zuma says it is time for this to stop. She is supporting a campaign launched by the Office of the Special Envoy for Women, Peace and Security at the African Union, Bineta Diop, and this launch was made at the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. We cannot accept this pervasive and ongoing sexual violence against women and impunity. The women of South Sudan have made several calls to action. And in July, when we met during the AU Kigali summit, I promised them that we will join in solidarity to say no to impunity and to campaign for their dignity. Today, as the African Union launches this campaign for peace and to restore the dignity of all women in South Sudan, I call on all Africans and all friends of Africa to join in solidarity. The rebel leader, Riek Machar, who was replaced as the vice president of the country, has threatened to relaunch a war on the country in order to regain his position of vice president of the transitional government of national unity that is currently occupied by the chief negotiator for the rebels during the peace talks, Tabandeng. Machar is currently in South Africa. For as long as the tension remains in South Sudan, the AU says the women will continue being victims and this is what it hopes will stop with this campaign to urge for the respect of the dignity of the South Sudan women. Koleta Anjohi for Channel Africa Radio in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Now let's go back in time to today in 1980, sorry, rather 1993. South Africa's judge sentenced Polish immigrant and supporter of the neo-Nazi Avia Janusz Walus and Conservative Party politician Clive Darby Lewis to death for assassinating the South African Communist Party leader, Chris Honey. That was today in history in the year 1993. <laughs> October 2016 marks 30 years of the tragic death of former Mozambican President Samora Machel. The theme for this memorable event is commemorating 30 years of selfless service and dedication to the people of Southern Africa. We remember them. Join the entire African community on the 17th of October 2016 as we remember those who dedicated their lives for freedom and democracy. Your favorite radio station, Channel Africa, will broadcast live from the Samora Machel Museum in Mpumalanga Province, South Africa. Remember October 17th, 
the 30th commemoration of Samora Machel, brought to you live by Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Experts say the possible prosecution of South Africa's finance minister, Pravin Gordon, could trigger a wave of similar legal actions against a number of senior government officials. That's with a number of senior state officials already indirectly implicated in a number of findings released by the Auditor General where irregular and wasteful expenditure was recorded. Law experts believe the case could set a precedent which could open a whole can of worms. Morafe Dabane reports. In 2010, Ivan Pillay requested to access his pension fund for personal reasons. This means that he had to resign from the Government Employee Pension Fund, GEPF and SARS. According to documents in possession of the SABC, SARS Exco then said it wished to retain Pillay's services as a contract employee. At the time, he was 57 years old. SARS retirement policy allows for retirement from the age of 55. However, the government pension fund rules state that the compulsory retirement age is 60. It also states that prior to 60, it is regarded as early retirement and that a penalty becomes applicable. Subsequent to this, SARS commissioner at the time, Opa Mahashula, then wrote to the minister and said that Pele had agreed to remain in the employ of SARS as deputy commissioner after his retirement on a three-year contract to assist with the leadership transition. In the letter, Mahashula also mentioned that prior to that, the government pension fund had approved 3,000 requests from various departments for staff members to retire before the age of 60 with full benefits. He also stated that the minister before Godin and Godin had approved five such requests. Member of Parliament Anton Alberts says the reappointment of Pele is similar to that of many people in government. The um, uh, pension um, of Mr. Pillay and the recontracting of him um, is something that's a daily occurrence and it's sort of an administrative practice within government. And um, the prosecuting authority will have to show that the minister had the intention to defraud uh, the state out of funds um, and um, they will have trouble doing that for um, it is practice and accepted by the government employees pension fund to allow people to go on early retirement and all that they expect from the employer is to make a, a penalty payment which I understand has been made in this case. Analyst Marco Masilela says the courts will have to prove that the minister did this knowing that it was wrong. The courts have to prove if the minister, whatever he has done, if it's wrong, has he done that knowingly so that this is wrong, I'm doing it. That's number one. And number two, we know that the retirement pension funds, it allows you that if a guy takes an early retirement, you are allowed because an early retirement, it means there will be some penalties. So you are allowed as an employer to pay that shortfall. So now in this instance that happened and the guy was re-employed. But I think the basis will be whatever that has been done, if it's wrong, did the minister do that knowing that this is wrong? Prior to Minister Gordon signing the request off, 
Mahashule had indicated that advice about this matter had been sought from the then Acting Director General of the Department of Public Service and Administration, Kenny Gavenda. According to Mahashula, Gavenda had confirmed that there was no restriction to this. Masilela says the latest move by the NPA is not surprising. It raises this whole suspicion. Reason being, we know for a fact that the current finance minister is not the first choice when Minister Nene was uh, called up in December. So he came in to save the situation. So those who are raising stories that, no, 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 they want to get rid of the guy, they might have a point to some extent. But fortunately, given that our courts are very independent, everyone has to prove their case in court. And I think that will help to settle the matter going forward. Meanwhile, Albert says Godan's case is going to open a can of worms where questions will be raised about officials who've been spending money irregularly. The danger of prosecuting people on this basis, especially for transgressing the Public Financial Management Act, is that virtually every state department are um, audited every year by the Auditor General, and in very few of them it is found that there are not any irregularities which is, of course, a breach of the Public Financial Management Act. That means if you're going to be prosecuting the minister and the director general, uh, the previous director general, Opa Mahashule, and Mr. Pillay, on this basis, you're going to open an avalanche of prosecutions for virtually every director general in this country would then have to be prosecuted. Virtually every head of a uh, government-owned entity for instance, um, I'll give an example. Mr. Brian Molefe would have to be prosecuted for these actions that he's taken towards prepaying a Gupta-owned company to get our That report by Murafe Tabane. Many young fighters belonging to the extremist Boko Haram group can be convinced to return to their communities with the right approach. That's what Hamsatu Alamin, negotiator and peacemaker from the town of Maiduguri in Nigeria, says when asked about the possibility of reintegrating them. During the rise of the militant group and after witnessing the counterproductive strategies employed by the government forces, she decided to engage these men and boys to stop the violence. Alamin is also behind a network of civil society organizations for peace that launched the Bring Back Our Girls campaign following the abduction of nearly 300 schoolgirls in Chibok. She explains how radio is helping to de-radicalize the youth in her region. Well, honestly, radio is a very, very important medium because even the poorest man at the grassroots always listens to the local radio. So we feel that the best way to disseminate information and then spread it wider is through the radio. So therefore, my first thinking is, now I have to build a relation between the Islamic scholars and then the media houses so that they can give their time and then the radio houses looking for materials can disseminate the messages of peace and peace building for this is what our people need. Do you feel that young people who join violent extremist groups do so because they don't have the right information? No, yeah, there is that also because there was a time I challenged, in fact, our scholars, local scholars, that honestly if they are not ready to set up the mechanisms on ground to impact the correct knowledge, the young man is always yearning hmm, to be filled with 
whatever is available on the ground. So if you are not ready to give them the right one, then whoever is around will be able to hijack them and then fill that mind and then with the wrong information. Although in fact they were not happy when I said it initially, but really that is the reality. So we are encouraging in fact all our scholars, especially the good scholars, the proactive ones, Mm, the modern ones who can now impact the right knowledge to our use. Another also thing that fuels this kind of ideology is the poverty. Yes, in fact, many people have observed at this forum that honestly you need to take care of these youth. If you can't, desperate politicians who are willing, who are ready to be in power by all means can manipulate them with the wrong ideology, wrong ideas and then keep, radicalize them and then use them to achieve their ends. And then some bad governments also, bad government people also can actually use this use, manipulate them to achieve their selfish ends so that whatever atrocities they commit can be covered up under this violence while they continue perpetrating their evil intentions. Where do you think women can succeed in countering violent extremism? Oh yeah, we can because women are sincere, women are natural peace builders. Given the opportunity, honestly, there is nothing a woman will not do, will not, there is no sacrifice a woman cannot do to achieve peace. Honestly, to every woman, everybody's child is her own, it's like her own. We bore them and then we feel the pain. Seeing our youth wasted, no matter where they come from, honestly, it pains every woman. So therefore, our resilience will make us succeed, sure, I believe. Although women are peacemakers, they've also been the ones to suffer a lot from the violent extremism. Um, the case in Nigeria, the Boko Haram, has made headlines all over the world. So what can be done so that young girls are no longer the targets of these groups? What I discovered about the Boko Haram is that nobody has actually engaged them, engaged with them in the right manner. Because honestly, I have been active in the field at the head of insurgency. I seek to know who they are. And believe you me, I have never been threatened by any Boko Haram member. Believe you me, some of us have even gone down to the bush to look for them and then talk to them. We have invited them to the city and then to talk to them. And really, they are, whenever we talk to them, they are eager to listen. But unfortunately for us, in our context, I think the government before, honestly, is never interested in peace. That is what we kept saying, because if the government has supported us, if we can negotiate with Boko Haram in the bush for an international humanitarian agency to access far away Bagai at the lecture region, to render humanitarian assistance, I believe this thing wouldn't have degenerated to the level that it did. And do you think that these young uh, boys and men can reform and can reintegrate society? Why not? Why not? You know, they are in categories. Some of them are never violent. Some of them have never engaged in violence. But somewhere along the line, some desperate politicians filtered into them and hijacked this ideology for their own selfish ends. And now it is coming. You see the billions of dollars in the name of defense. 
people are just looting it, sharing it among themselves in the name of fighting Boko Haram. So you think these people will allow this insurgency to end so that their source of getting money ends? This is the reality of the situation. This is what we want the international community to know. There is more to this Boko Haram issue than is actually known. And then, yes, really, with the right engagement, right approach, many of them will come back. That was Hamsatu Alamin, Nigerian negotiator and peacemaker, speaking to UN Radio's Jocelyn Sambira. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you. In the headlines, more than 50 people have been killed in fighting in three of South Sudan's volatile regions. A United Nations special envoy to Burundi to travel to the country and work on a consensus regarding the possible deployment of a UN police component. And the Office of South Africa's Public Protector says it's still not clear if Advocate Tulima Drunsela will release the preliminary report into state capture by the Gupta family. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. According to new research by Save the Children International, every seven seconds a girl under the age of 15 is married. Despite the current pledge by the international community to end child marriage by 2030, the charity estimates that if the practice follows the current trend, the number of child brides will increase from 700 million today to an estimated 930 million by 2030. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Nahashan Aluwaka, Regional Advocacy and Campaigns Director for Save the Children. Nahashan, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Now, take us through the key findings of this report, particularly for the African region. Uh, thank you. As, as you have highlighted some of the statistics, it's really um, startling uh, for the region. Um, child marriage remains uh, a big, big, big issue, and uh, looking at the African region, um, it, it confirms the key findings of the report that uh, child marriage is worse in countries that uh, suffer grave poverty and, and, and conflict. And in the region, for instance, we have um, Somalia, where we have 45% of girls under the age of 18, um, uh, you know, 45% of the girls married before they are 18. South Sudan, 52%. Those are very, very high percentages. And the, the report also brings out a very clear link between um, early marriage and, we, and high maternal mortality rates. So countries that happen to have uh, high percentages of early marriage also tend to have high percentages or high rates of maternal uh, mortality. Uh, in, in, in the two countries, for instance, we have uh, in, in Somalia 732 um, women uh, per thousand dying, uh, you know, during childbirth. South Sudan, again, 789 per thousand uh, 100,000 live births uh, dying during delivery. 
The, the same also spreads across uh, other regions. In Malawi, for instance, the same case applies. Very, very high uh, rates of uh, maternal mortality in relation to child marriage. Ethiopia, for instance, we have uh, uh, 46% uh, cases of child marriage, percentage, 46% of child marriage, and very high incidence of uh, uh, maternal mortality. We also see a very clear linkage between high uh, percentage of early marriage and lower secondary school completion uh, across uh, many countries in Africa. Uh, if you run to West Africa, to you know, uh, East and Southern Africa, the same case applies. And this is indicative that uh, we have at least insight of what we need to do in the region to address the, the prevalent problem of, 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 of early child marriage. Now, Nahashan, the report says many families marry off their daughters um, to protect them from poverty, but are they ignorant of the impact of early marriage for girls? Uh, Lulu... Early marriage has been an age-old practice. And, uh, you know, there is a tendency for families and households to consider this as normal. And to a great extent, there is a lot of, uh, I can't call it ignorance, the way you, you, you say it. But at the moment, that needs not to be the case anymore because we now have uh, uh, studies that have confirmed a very, um, a very clear uh, impact of child marriage on the lives of, of women. And, and I think, uh, as the children and many other agencies, we now appreciate the need to, uh, you know, invest uh, in sensitizing uh, communities on the impact of uh, early marriage on the lives of, 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 of girls. Um, you know, so that we can uh, need this, uh, we, we can uh, curb this. Uh, practice that is really harmful to uh, to girls, and it's not a it's not a solution whatsoever, and it will never be uh, to uh, you know the poverty or deprivation that families experience, uh, you know, um, especially during wars or in in, in, in uh, during disasters in in the region. Uh, now, based on the findings. Um, uh, no, based on the findings, is Africa making any progress um, in ending child marriage or are more girls continuing to be failed? Based on this particular study, Lulu, it, might, it is difficult to, to, to answer on the progress, but the, the, there are insights that we are getting from the report that is indicative that we are making progress in the African uh, region. Uh, for instance, uh, the report brings out the link between uh, lower secondary school completion and, 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 and child marriage. And we see a number of countries um, uh, investing, uh, increasing their investment in education. Uh, we see uh, a number of countries implementing the free primary uh, education uh, policies. Those are good, um, those are good strides. Uh, because we know that the more we keep our girls in school, uh, the less likely they are, they are to get involved in, uh, in, in early, early marriage. So we are making some, some strides. We also see a number of countries where uh, we have more women, um, uh, you know, uh, 
in parliament in decision making positions and the more we have uh, women in those positions they serve as role models and they motivate other girls showing them what is possible uh, rwanda for instance is leading uh, globally with 54 percent of 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 of, of, uh, of parliamentarians being women higher than the uni- united states for instance that has only 19 percent of women in the congress so uh, these are good things that are happening and I think uh, we, are on the, we are on the right path, but we need to do much more and a bit urgently to help Kabez. Now, what else um, seems to be missing on the global uh, stage in terms of global efforts to protect every girl and empower them to grow into responsible adults, apart from um, the normal uh, people to look up to and uh, access to education? What else needs to be done on a global platform? Um, thank you. Let, let me note that globally we we have a number of countries that have ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. And uh, in the African region, uh, African region, of course, we have the um, African Church on the right, uh, of Rights and Welfare of the Child. Very two uh, important uh, global frameworks that specifically also address issues of, uh, of child marriage. Uh, but, but I think what is missing is uh, you know the accountability mechanism uh, for states uh, in terms of making their uh, you know uh, constitutional and legal framework favor, you know uh, favorable and enabling to address uh, child marriage. We have countries where the constitution is is vague or not very clear in a, a admonishing child marriage, and we have acts, uh, for instance, laws that are explicit on addressing child marriage. So where we have a disparity or a gap between the constitutional framework and the legal framework, it becomes very difficult uh, to, to, to resolve some of, of, of these issues, especially where uh, legislation uh, is involved. So that's an, an area where we still need a lot of global effort in terms of strengthening uh, the accountability uh, uh, when it comes to uh, the, the, the legal uh, frameworks uh, that uh, are aimed at uh, helping curb uh, child marriage. What recommendations does the report make, if any, to help um, scourge the issue of child marriages? The, the report is very, very uh, clear. Uh, we've seen, uh, we now know that child marriage happens quite a lot in areas where we have great poverty and also conflict. And one of the recommendations the report is making is for um, increased and adequate financing so that uh, households can have some minimum of financing, for instance, to cushion them against the uh, against F, um, poverty uh, during such uh, times of, of need. And then also, you know, increased financing for improved service delivery um, and more specifically in service delivery targeting girls uh, when we're talking of essential services. Uh, the second recommendation the report makes is on equal treatment. Uh, let us work towards giving girls and boys uh, same opportunities and work on harmonizing uh, the, 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 the legislative and legal frameworks that we have 
uh, in various countries to create uh, an environment that uh, could help uh, calm uh, child marriage. And then lastly, uh, involving, the report calls for, uh, you know, uh, strengthened and meaningful uh, involvement of, of, of girls in decision-making that, uh, uh, decision-making on areas that affect their personal uh, life. So those three uh, areas uh, are where the report uh, makes strong uh, recommendations and, and we, we, the findings are very clear. If we address these areas and drive the requisite funding, we are a better place to reduce child marriage. Nahashan, thank you so much for joining us. We have to leave it there for now. Thank you, Lulu. That was Nahashan Alwoka, Regional Advocacy and Campaigns Director for Save the Children International. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's go back in time to today in 2004, leader of Zimbabwe's opposition party, the Movement for Democratic Change, Morgan Changurai, is cleared of treason charges. Changurai was charged with treason for allegedly plotting to kill President Robert Mugabe. That was today in history in the year 2004. Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And you can catch me on at Zonke Music on Twitter and Zonke Dikana on Facebook. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabisa Lohoku. International Ratings Agency, Standard & Poor's has warned that any attempt to undermine key institutions like the Treasury will see South Africa likely downgraded to junk status. SNP is set to deliver its next ratings review on December 2nd, addressing a Thomson Reuters summit in Cape Town as the agency African head Conrad Ries said rising political tensions could affect South Africa's structural reforms and become a serious risk to the creditworthiness. His economic outlook comes days after Finance Minister Pravin Gordon's fraught summons seen as an attempt by allies of President Jacob Zuma to take control of the Treasury. 
66 rock drill operators have staged an underground sit-in at the Gold One Moda East Mine at Springs in the east of Johannesburg in South Africa. Spokesperson of the National Union of Mine Workers, Lipuani Mamburu, says the sit-in started on Tuesday and the miners have vowed not to come out until their demands are met. The management here is not willing to listen to, to their demands. And uh, as we speak at the moment, their health is not, is not good at all. The private company selected as the lead investor in a planned 3.5 billion US dollar oil pipeline between Uganda and Tanzania could receive up to a 60% stake in the project. Tanzania and Uganda plan to finish building a crude pipeline by 2020 to ship a crude from Uganda's oil fields in the Albertine Rift Basin. Securing a partnership with a private company is key to the project. Uganda also plans to build a $2.5 billion refinery so it can earn more from its oil resources. Kenya's Transport Cabinet Secretary James Macharia has threatened pilots with a tough action should they proceed on strike next Tuesday. This even as the national carrier is hit by massive booking cancellations as a result of the pending industrial action. Macharia says the planned strike is illegal and driven by selfish interests. The Ghana Cocoa Board has reviewed upwards the producer price cocoa. Now, a statement issued in Accra and copied in the Ghana News Agency says the board announced new cocoa prices for the cocoa season. The statement, signed by CEO of the Cocoa Board, Stephen Guabena, says that the new rate for the cocoa price took effect from October the 1st. The U.S. dollar trades at 14.26 to the South African rand, 10.66 in Botswana, 9.92 in Zambia. 8-1 to the British pound, 9-0 euro, gold $1,255, platinum $930 an ounce, so brand crude $52, 0 5 cents a barrel. Lulugaboo's Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Figile Lengwati. In our sports update this hour, we're kicking off with football news. South African Football Association SAFA President Denny Jordan says with the under-17 men's national team have rom- having romped into the final of the BRICS tournament currently taking place in India, this goes to show Vision 2022 is very much on track. Congratulating Amajimbos after walloping Russia 3-1 on Thursday to reach the final of the inaugural BRICS under-17 football cup and book a berth with Brazil, Jordan says... Such dominance by South African junior teams augurs well for the future. Jordan says the fundamental philosophy of Vision 2022 is constantly competing and doing well in the continental and global tournaments, and the junior teams are doing exactly that. 
Brazil and South Africa will contest the final on the 15th of October at 1200 hours Central African time and the match will be played at Fatoda Stadium. South African rugby side Golden Lions coach Johan Ackerman believes the break from Curry Cup rugby that the team enjoyed was good for his side and they got time to put in some hard work. Ackerman says he is happy with the progress his team have made in the past week. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, um, I do believe the guys had a good uh, almost two weeks, um, especially last week. There was a mix between a bit of off time. We had, they had a, a, enough, well, a bit more than normal normal week, but also they worked hard. And um, this week so far went really well. Um, with normal routine, nothing changed. Our timings is, is, is the same, so there's nothing new for the players. We, obviously, we been treated as, as any other game. Um, so yeah, so we're happy with the progress um, with the, with the, that the guys showed in the last uh, week. In golf news, NetBank Golf Challenge, the NGC tournament director, Alistair Roper, says even though they have expanded the field from 12 to 72 players, there will be no cut. The NGC, dubbed by golf pundits as Africa's major, will run from the 10th to the 13th of November as opposed its normal date of December at Gary Player Country Club in Sun City, South Africa's northwest province. It will also provide vital points for those who will be fighting for European Tour Order of Merit and the race to Dubai. 72 players, all four days. First day we are going to seed the players by virtue of their rankings. Mm-hmm. On each day after that it will be uh, seeded by virtue of how they're performing in the tournament. Basically all the players will, will be paid. Well, for just you know, showing up. Well, the law, you're going to get money. You're going to get eleven thousand two hundred dollars. <laughs> so yes, I mean, but these kind of players normally, if they do get paid, they get paid, uh, you know, anything from two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to five hundred thousand. So what's more important on uh, yeah is on offering is the fact that you be the last event before Dubai, and it's to get to Dubai in the top sixty and to win in Dubai. There's a lot of money on offer yeah and there. Uh, that is obviously very important. And then the other thing, there's great world ranking points for the U- European players. There's Ryder Cup points. So, yeah, it's key. Meanwhile, for the first time since Tiger Woods made his appearance at the NGC back in 1998, accommodation at the resort and within the vicinity of Sun City has been fully booked. That's according to Ropa. I, I've been very pleasantly surprised. I can only go by what... <coughs> I'm told, uh, you know, all stakeholders, all our sponsors, uh, our own people are saying that they are inundated with requests for tickets. Accommodation is at a premium once again. We're having to book accommodation off-site and put people uh, in hotels as far back as Rustenburg because we don't have enough accommodation. Yeah, the demand is, is far surpasses the supply that we have here. And there's a four-way tie at the British Masters at the Grove and a very congested leaderboard. Mark Warren, Risa Staney, Miko Ilonen and Tommy Fleetwood share five under par while 20 players are within two strokes of the lead. Nick Dye reports. 
Warren has a weight off his shoulders. Having secured his European Tour playing rights with fifth place at St Andrews, he's showing the improved form and playing with freedom in some tricky weather conditions. The wind picked up across the course of day one, meaning 66s for Sturney, who was second in Scotland, and for Fleetwood are even more impressive. Illinan's another to build on the promise of last week. Lee Westwood's among the players one stroke back, while Chris Wood, Shane Lowry and Graham McDowell are three under par. On his return after an 18-month absence, Jose Maria Olathabal's back at two over, and the host, Luke Donald, labouring at an unfortunate six over par. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sour, UN appoints Antonio Guterres as the new Secretary General, and at least nine people were killed in South Sudan in renewed clashes. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagadza and Khomuzo Mopulane, technical producer Murray Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Amanda Black with a song titled Amazulu. Drifting, I'm drifting away into the darkness. Is what I to twilight and make them all of mine. I'm falling, tell me I'm not 